Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains. Join us each week to hear from leading experts in the exciting new fields of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the decentralized web, where we talk about the future of the internet and what that means for humans like us. Not only will this podcast help you sound super smart around your friends, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in this space and help lead the charge toward a more decentralized web. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and I'm here today with our guest, Mitchell F. Chan. He is the artist and creator behind a really cool NFT project that I have just been going down deep, deep rabbit holes on. It's called the Digital Zones of Immaterial Pictorial Sensibility, also known as IKB, if you've heard it referred to in another way. So I'm super excited to have Mitchell here to talk about this because it ha- it's, it took me so long to wrap my mind around what this project is. And it's one of the original NFT projects back from 2017 before NFTs were really even a thing. Um, And so Mitchell, thank you so much for being here today. I'm really excited to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, now that I've, you know, teased the hell out of this project, I'm going to make people wait even more. I want to know a little bit about your background. Let's just go chronologically. Take me back to, you know, who you were before you created Digital Zones. Were you an artist in the past or what kind of background do you come from? Sure. So before Digital Zones, I was, as I still am today, an artist. I mean, I've been working as a professional artist since probably 2006. Um, So, you know, very fortunate to have had that career. And really, my the sort of thesis behind most of my work was that I'm interested in representing the invisible systems and structures in the world around us that have a big impact in our very visible and tangible world, right? A lot of that is technology, technological systems, right? The way that, you know, social media networks are set up is invisible and intangible and yet has an impact on how we deal with each other face-to-face in our real worlds. Economic systems, social systems, right? If you were trying to paint a picture of the world today and be truthful to reality, it makes sense those would be the subjects that you would try to paint in those pictures, right? But the question is always how best to represent something that is invisible and intangible. And where my career had been leading me was that I said, well, if you're trying to make a depiction, a representation of these systems and structures which are invisible, the best media to represent them would be media that are almost invisible, right? Um, You know, that are just on that threshold. That's as as truthful as you could get. So the last sculpture that I made before I made Digital Zones was a sculpture that consisted of two clouds of water vapor. And water vapor, right? And so there were these two clouds that came out of walls in the gallery. Um, Every few seconds, you hear a boom. And these two big clouds, they were each maybe three feet in diameter. They would move towards each other in the gallery. And then collide into nothingness. And this was a way of representing systems of online discourse, right? These things are invisible or intangible. So I made it out of something that was almost intangible, these clouds. So that was sort of how I worked. And then when you think about my career like that, it's sort of a natural progression that I would use cryptocurrency as a medium because that's a system. It's invisible. It's intangible. So that was kind of how it all led there. 
Yeah, gotcha. So when you when was it that you first learned about crypto? Was it, uh, you know, like way back when the Bitcoin white paper came out? Or was it later? And then how did you I guess, you, you essentially conceptualized NFTs in your head before NFTs were even a thing? Right? So Okay, how did I come to crypto? Um, of course, you know, I'd heard of Bitcoin um, prior to 2017, but I wasn't really in that ecosystem. I really came to it. I really came to crypto looking for an art material. It was right after it was right after making that cloud sculpture. I was trying to figure out, well, what will my next medium be? What's even less tangible than clouds? And I learned about Ethereum right? Programmable money. And I said, oh, well, if this is money that's programmable, that means it's money that you can digitally sculpt with. It's, it's an art material. So that was, that was how I entered it. And in terms of conceptualizing the NFT, you know, I must admit it wasn't my initial aim to do that. At first, when I first started playing with it um, as an art material, you know, it's just like being in the artist studio with any other material. I don't know what I'm going to make. I'm, I'm, I'm writing code. I'm learning solidity. I'm configuring it like this. I'm configuring it like that. I'm wondering, oh, is this going to be a trading bot? Is this going to be, you know, am I going to make my own kind of branded altcoin or something like that? And it was ending up making a non-fungible token representing art. It was just where the research led me. Gotcha. Okay, so then take us through this journey of creating digital zones um, and maybe start with the the story behind the original story that inspired you to create this on-chain version. Um, so tell us, like, who was Yves Klein? What did he do? And like, what inspired digital zones? Sure. Yeah, I love telling this story. So I'm, I, I'm in the crypto world now, and it's completely new. And whenever um, we come across something new, it's very helpful to look back to the past to see if there are any precedent ways for understanding this. And then you can see how they're similar, and you can see how they're different. And so I spent a long time trying to figure out, does, art, does the history of art have anything to say about this cryptocurrency things? Uh, <laughs> and after a lot of research, you know, I ended up at Eve Klein. And so here's what Eve Klein did that I felt was a perfect analogy to what would happen if art started to be traded on blockchain. Eve Klein created this project in 1958. It was called Zones of Immaterial Pictorial Sensibility. Now, what we should know about Eve Klein before we get into this project is that Eve Klein was by that point um, already a very famous artist. I mean, he was a prodigy. This project was released in 1958 on his 30th birthday. And he was at that point very famous, mostly for these stunning blue monochrome paintings. These were paintings and they were just blue and they weren't just any blue. These were the most incredible, flat, hypnotic shade of blue um, that, I, that, that, that you can imagine. It's a blue that he actually patented. He patented his own process for making this specific blue, right? So that was his whole career. But his whole career, he had a very spiritual view of art, right? He wanted his work to be not just a painting that represented something. He wanted it to be a feeling that was conferred to the viewer. And in a lot of ways, the painting, the object that was mediating this feeling between the artist and the collector was an impediment to him. And he always wondered, can I just directly transfer this feeling that is in my soul to a collector? All this sounds very sort of cheesy, very kumbaya, but he was this kind of guy, right? And so the apotheosis of his career, I believe, happens with these zones of immaterial pictorial sensibility. It goes like this. 
people line up to see this exhibition in a gallery. All right, it's happening in Paris. They approach the gallery. There's a blue curtain uh, over the window, so you can't see what's in there. All right, you enter, and the room was completely empty. These artworks, these zones, they were empty space. They were completely invisible. And Klein claims that they are that the room is full of the sensibility of the color blue that he's imbued. And this seems like a very sort of low effort art school thing to do. But, you know, you look at his whole career and you could believe in this, right? But he's also very interested in, beyond just the sort of spiritual nature of art, he's also very realistic about the relationship that an art's experience has to its transaction. And he understands that buying a piece of art and owning a piece of art is a part of its experience. And he doesn't do this this thing that we see in, a, in in the art world a lot, right? We see in the art world a lot, people say, oh, well, it's vulgar to talk about prices. Oh, it's vulgar to talk about the market. We must only talk about the higher sensibility of the art. He's, he's beyond that. You know, that's a very disingenuous argument. He acknowledges that these things bleed into each other. The commodity form of the artwork and the experienced form of the artwork, they bleed into each other. So these things are for sale. And he's thoughtful about how they're going to be sold. This is the most immaterial artwork that's ever been made. And so to juxtapose um, uh, against that, he will sell them only for the most material of currencies. He will sell them only for pure gold. Okay? <laughs> and this is a nice counterpoint to what he's trying to do in the art. People did buy them for pure gold. This actually happened. They would give him 20 grams of gold. And they would get in return this paper receipt. It told them which specific zone they had, how much they'd paid for it. All right. So this was a token. It was a non-fungible token that pointed to ownership of an immaterial artwork. Okay. And I've just now described every NFT that we've seen over the past four years. That's what it was. And this was in the 1950s. This, that's it was in 1958, <laughs> right? So I'm looking at this and I'm saying, holy smokes, like, because I'm thinking, all right, how could blockchain transact art? How can we trade block, uh, art on the blockchain? Well, the blockchain is very limited in terms of what we can put on chain. We can't really put a, like all different types of art on chain. We can only create receipts that point to other artworks, right? And that would be a separation of the commodity form. The commodity form now goes on blockchain. So the expressive form is free to be whatever we want, anything and even nothing. All right. And that's what would happen if ever tokenized artworks existed, right? This is what I'm seeing. So it's not that I conceived of non-fungible tokens as as a way of transacting artwork. It's that I saw in art history that, oh my goodness, this is the example that points to how all future like artworks on blockchain will be transacted, right? So that was that that was really it. There were a bunch of other neat features about Klein's artwork that I translated into solidity. For instance, like the issuance, they were released in series or tranches, and those series were released on a bonding curve where the price doubled every every 10 tokens, so mine did as well. There was a unique feature about burning the piece that I think we'll talk about later, and so all of these I translated into solidity, and it was just a way of understanding for myself and hopefully for others, like what tokenized artwork would mean in the future if it ever were to become a thing which at the time i wasn't sure it would 
See, this is this is why this is like my favorite project right now that I'm super obsessed with because what you just described is NFTs were conceptualized in 1958. People talk about, oh, they were conceptualized in, you know, 2017 with CryptoPunks or uh, whatever, you know, I think it's up for debate what the first NFT project was, but it sounds like the first NFT project was in 1958. We just didn't have the technology to be able to, you know, put it on the blockchain or do things like that. But that's essentially, it, it, that's exactly what it was. That's what I, b I believe as well. And so again, it's just about making, it's about making that connection, right? Because I think that a lot of, um, most of the innovative things that we see in the world, they're not just sort of created, you know, out of out of the blue, out of the ether, to use two, you know, uh, very convenient <laughs> turns of phrase, right? Uh, there are very few innovations in the world that are true, like, let there be light in the darkness moments. It is about finding the right historical analog to apply to the right current technological conditions, and then saying, Eureka! Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, okay, let's go back to Eve Klein's story because we haven't even gotten to the most exciting part yet, which is the burning ritual. Okay, so Eve Klein back to 1958, basically you go to this art gallery, they set you up with a bunch of blue things, blue curtains, blue windows, blue everything to sort of like, you know, get this feeling of blue or this idea of, of blue or just get it in your mind that you're going to like walk into this empty room and feel this feeling of blue, whatever that means. And you go in, you buy, you know, a, a zone, you get a receipt and then, and then what? Okay. And so this is the most exciting part. So tell us then what? So here's the thing. This is all, this whole project is about the difference between like legal ownership and true ownership of an artwork. And Klein says that just because you own this token, I mean, really what you own, it means it means that you own a receipt. But this project is about a sensibility and tr like to have a true sort of spiritual sensibility there. Like it means a relinquishing of legal ownership. So he says, you can perform this ritual. You meet me at the River Sen and you burn this paper token. All right. And this paper token is the only thing that you got in exchange for your 20 grams of gold. Well, at least the only visible, tangible thing that you got. Right. And it's a thing if you'd have held on to it, you know, right now it would be in a museum and be worth a lot of money. But you could burn this token and Klein would throw half of his gold into the river. And in doing this, this ritual was the true transfer of 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 the sensibility of the piece, right? And I think this is really beautiful. And there are three documented instances of, of people doing this. People met Eve Klein at the river and they burned their paper token and Klein threw his gold into the river Sen and that, that immaterial sensibility was conferred. See, this is the wildest thing to me because I think this is where like, a lot of people listening maybe are just like they cannot wrap their minds around this or they're pained to even hear it because in this day and age, it's like everyone has to capture every moment. You know, you've got to like take pics of every moment, put it on Instagram. You have a record of it and to just completely destroy any evidence of this transaction of this history and all that remains is in your mind or in your heart or in your soul or, you know, however you want to convey that. I think that is... I mean, that's something that is, you know, really hard to get a grasp on. It's really strange. Um, very few people have done that with my token, um, with, 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 with my NFT. In fact, it's only been done once, and it was done the day after the project went on sale. 
And as, you know, things have, have progressed and the project has become, you know, more widely known um, and also more valuable price-wise, I think that that idea has become even more special to me. It's become even more meaningful. I mean, obviously, um, burning one of these tokens now, you know, would be a much bigger financial loss for whomever did it, um, is like weird as that is to think right now. Um, but it's also like, you know, in this real, this, this market is more supercharged and frenetic than I ever would have imagined. And therefore the contrast to just letting go of all that and just having this sort of like peace and calm and serenity, uh, that comes with, with that relinquishing is I think even more meaningful right now. And um, I hope that I get a chance to do that with some collectors in the very near future. Yeah. So, okay. Explain that parallel a little more um, in detail about how it works with your digital zones now. So say somebody purchases a digital zone NFT, which also, by the way, there are only 100, I think, or is it 101? Of these NFTs? There were 101 that were ever available, and then one has been burned, so we're down to 100, and and hopefully some more will be burned and will uh, and and will will be uh, further deflationary. Right, right. Okay, so there's a hundred of these NFTs right now. When somebody purchases one of these, it just goes through as a normal transaction, right? They have to take the extra step of saying that they want to burn it and they want half of the purchase price to be burnt as well, like both parties have to take this um, take this extra step in order for that to happen. Otherwise, it just goes through as a normal NFT transaction, right? Yeah. Uh, once you own it, you can at any point perform the ritual to to burn it. And actually, I, I don't need to be involved with that. Anybody can call that function on the smart contract, and it will automatically throw um, half of my ether into uh, a, a provably irretrievable uh, contract. That'll be gone forever. And that collector's uh, digital zone token will also be gone forever. Um, I, you know, I've put it out there and asked collectors and said, if you do this, it'd be really nice to, to do it together because, you know, anybody who, who, who does do it, I, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to chat with them so we can truly like confer some kind of non-tangible like experience together. But, um, uh, yeah, it can happen really anytime. Got it. So it's up to the buyer to decide if they want to burn the NFT. And then if they do decide that, then half of the seller's ETH that they received from the transaction will automatically be burned. No, half of my ETH is burned. The seller oh, just loses. Yeah, yeah, it, it, exactly. Right. Because that is the gold that I received for this zone of immaterial pictorial sensibility. And so I would be throwing half of my gold into the river and the uh, and, and, and the collector would, would just be burning their their token. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. And you said only one person has done this so far. Did, do you know who it yeah. is? Did they hit you up or? I don't. It was done completely anonymously. Wow. Wow. Okay. All right. So, okay. <laughs> going back to when you first created this, what did you think was going to happen with this project? So you created it in 2017. It was largely pretty silent um, until recently when it's exploded again, right? So like, what was your expectation of what was going to happen when you created this? I didn't have a lot of expectations. I released it 
into the art world. It was unveiled and the first token was minted at InterAccess Media Art Centre uh, here in Toronto, which is a, a gallery and art centre with a long 35-year history of presenting innovative uh, new media projects. And then I presented it again at Kent State University a few months afterwards. And really nothing happened. I mean, it was just something I think that the art world maybe just wasn't ready to hear about crypto, at least not the art world, at least not the part of it that I was, you know, in. Um, there were other parts of the art world that were thinking about this and but they were half a world away and um, and, 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 and we didn't really connect. Um, and so it was, it was just quiet. I made some predictions in, in the essay that accompanied the piece, right? The, the, this, this, this token, this smart contract I released was accompanied by a 33 page essay that put all these ideas and these stories down, uh, uh, in writing. And so I did make some predictions and like, make no mistake, some of them were a little bit tongue in cheek because I truly never expected it to take off to the extent that it has now. But, you know, I said, okay, in the future, um, I did say that, you know, digital artworks might be be listed on exchanges, um, you know, that there might be like centralized marketplaces for transacting them. I did say that it's possible that even though these tokens are, are indivisible, that somebody could put it into a contract to fractionalize them. Right. Um, and so but all those predictions, I wouldn't say they were things that I was expecting. They were things that I was almost tongue in cheek like suggesting could happen. And now all of them have happened. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's super impressive that you were able to predict all of that. Um, and so I guess like now, um, when you look at like the ecosystem and how much it's exploded, what are some things that you attribute to that? Like why, in your opinion, like why is it that, you know, digital zones were mostly silent for four years and then all of a sudden have exploded in the last month or so? Um, because crypto is a very passionate community. One of the things that like has fueled the, the, the NFT boom entirely is that communities need culture to survive right you need a culture to rally around um you need a culture and that's what i think nfts represented like on one hand like just from a market perspective they were a major like liquidity unlocking event for a lot of crypto collectors it gave uh, uh crypto accounts another place to invest in but it was about seeing some of these digital artists and seeing, okay, this is a way of investing in an aesthetic and a culture. And I think that digital zones um, have really, really boomed because they're not just an artwork that is native to crypto. They are an artwork that is about crypto and they are an artwork that presents crypto as a natural extension to a century long story of conceptual art. And I think that's meaningful for people. I think it is, it's, it's, it's meaningful uh, whenever they see an artwork that acknowledges really this is uh, this, this continues a story that had been that, that, that started a long time ago. Yeah. And so when you look at the space now, what are some other projects that you think uh, really deserve, you know, some praise and some mention of being really awesome? Because there's so many projects 
I think everybody has like sort of different views about this NFT space. Some people just see like the cool cats and the pudgy penguins and all these cute little animals and don't really see the art value in it. And then other projects, you know, are, are using cool tech, you know, like art blocks with the generative art. I think that's really cool. And then other projects actually have, you know, like high effort art, like very, very much um, in contrast to the, all the low effort art that uh, we're seeing out there. So when you look at the space, like what are some of the projects that you think are most worthy of mention right now? Sure. So there, are, I think, are two different categories of works that are really blowing up right now. One is work that is trying to um, test the boundaries of what can be done on blockchain. So we see anything like with the word on-chain <laughs> um, is really exploding right now. On-chain generative, you know, whatever, whatever. Um, and so, you know, people want to invest in those innovations and, and, and be a part of them, feel a sense of ownership over them. And personally, I think that, you know, for artists, there's this mad scramble to claim land. Okay, I'm going to be the first person to use blockchain like this. I'm going to be the first person to use it to, to create a smart contract that does exactly this. Um, all of those innovations and all those all that experimentation is is valuable because all those artists are creating tools um, for the rest of us to come in and use later. So it's so it's extremely valuable. But I think time will only tell whether the actual artistic expression, like the actual sentiment uh, and ideas and concepts behind that innovation will stand the test of time because it is just a mad dash to be the first person to do this or that, you know, or to, you know, fill, use the data field of an NFT transaction in such and such a way. Um, but the other explosion that we're seeing right now is we are seeing a lot of NFT archaeologists find other projects um, sort of like digital zones that were, you know, both innovative in their application of smart contracts and connecting to a history. So we're seeing like a lot of artists who, you know, four years ago were really just publishing their papers and ideas on further field, you know, are now like now collectors are discovering them. The market is discovering them. So we're seeing artists like Rhea Myers um, and projects that were like facilitated by, you know, really big people in the space like Sam Hart and, and Terra Zero, right? Their projects are being discovered and they were similarly innovating technologically and connecting to history. There was innovation and there was thought behind it. That's that's a category that I'm sort of most excited to see. And also because those people are great and, you know, recognition has been a long time coming for them. I love those projects that you called out. And I have recently been doing some NFT archaeology, too, and just going back and understanding, you know, why, like, which are the projects that are still around after all of these years? And why have they been able to stand the test of time? And that's how I dug up digital zones, you know, and some of the other projects that you mentioned as well. So when you look into the future, what do you see as I guess like some of the things that are missing in the NFT space or some of maybe the ways that we've gone wrong or that things that need to be fixed in the NFT space in order for us to progress forward and be able to like achieve, you know, whatever it is in your mind that you think like is the goal to achieve with NFTs. So right now we're moving really fast. Right. Like I said, artists are moving like very quickly as individuals, all trying to. Uh, plant a flag in in this technological innovation or that technological innovation, right? Collectors are moving really fast. They're unearthing these projects, finding value. The great land grab, all right, is is here. 
But, you know, there's a saying that if you want to move quickly, you go alone. And if you, you know, want to go far, you go together. And so I think that the next thing that we're going to see is the building of more infrastructure that will support artists, collectors, and most significantly, cultural workers long term. Um, what I mean by that is, you know, the market has you know decided to elevate certain projects very very quickly very very far um, and markets can do that right M markets can be very quick very agile and things can go up really quickly and they can go down as quickly as they can go up but cultural value is accrued slowly over time right ultimately something like a picasso has cultural value because there's been decades of people writing about it, studying about it, exhibiting it, and using that artwork to tell stories that are meaningful to them. And the people who have built that cultural value are not the artists themselves. And so right now our space doesn't really have a way to reward those people or compensate those people. So what I'm hoping will happen next in the space, now that there's been this explosion of interest, you know, which is fantastic and I'm so grateful and so appreciative of, um, and then hopefully we'll have a moment to slow down, we'll be able to build something that looks a little bit like the galleries and artist collectives that we had before, but better, right? Like we'll be able to skip a lot of the stuff that didn't work about that and 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 just focus on the things that did work. And what did work was communities that uh, you know are are like invested in um, uh, building stories, doing curation, writing essays, putting on exhibits, and they're going to build cultural value that makes sure this type of art is 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 here to stay. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I sort of, when I look at the space, I sort of see it like maybe going like one of two different ways because we've reached this spot where, um, you know, prices are sky high. Like it just seems like we're like at a peak of NFTs that we've never been at before. And it seems like now like people are taking like a, two different approaches to it. Some people are treating NFTs almost the same way as they're treating, you know, Bitcoin or ETH or Litecoin as just like trading currency, like trading stocks and an investment and, you know, going out and minting all these new NFT projects and then making a quick flip. Um, they've like got a strategy down, like there are people like that. And then there are other people who actually see the value of artwork and um, are, you know, have have the mentality more in the direction of digital zones, which is, you know, like the price doesn't matter maybe as much as, you know, some people might like to think or the market is uh, expressing at this moment. But it's really like the feeling you get from the artwork or like the connection you feel to the artwork that is really valuable. And so I'm curious to see in the future which direction this goes, or I guess which elements of the NFT ecosystem we carry on into the future. And I think you mentioned like the culture aspect, I think is really strong and we can't really, you know, survive without. And then there's the community aspect, which I think has has really surfaced with the NFT boom. And I think that's probably a really good thing for us to carry on into the future as well. But um, I, I am definitely interested to see, you know, which direction we go, because it does to in a sense feel like we're at a fork in the road and we could go one of two ways. 
Yeah, I agree with that. And and really, I'm not a, a market speculator. I don't have a ton of insight on that. But but really, I mean, it will go both ways, right? Where some ultimately, like some of the projects that are just traded, you know, they'll 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 go away. And you know, projects and artists who you know invest in in cultural labor and stuff, those you know will will continue to have value, cultural value and you know financial value. Because you know what people you know will realize is that yeah, you can build you you can build long term value for these artworks for these NFTs in ways that like you can't necessarily build long term value for your altcoin, right? And you build it by right, and and you build it by just supporting the other cultural laborers who who are telling the story around the work. Yeah. And so finally, Mitchell, last question for you. Since you were able to predict so many things correctly in your 2017 blue paper about what the space would look like today, if you had to write a blue paper today about what the NFT space is going to look like in, you know, let's say 10 years down the road, what would be some things that you would write in that paper? What I would predict is that tokenization um, would become adopted for physical artworks um, and that it would be used by institutions to separate custody over the experienced form of the artwork from ownership over the financial aspect of the artwork. And I would predict that that would have a wild wild effect on the global art market. Okay. So basically, <laughs> okay, okay. I, I feel like you need to elaborate on that point a little bit. Um, cause I don't know if people understand what you just said. You're basically separating ownership with custody. And so how would that play out? Like, it, you know, well, think about this, right? I said that, you know, I, I, I said that um, an NFT is a way of separating the commodity form of an artwork from its experienced form, right? And when you do that and you let the commodity form be a token on blockchain that's extremely liquid, all right, very, very easy to transfer, to buy, sell, and trade. And then you also allow the art form to be anything, right? Because before, all right. An artwork had to have both of those aspects in and of itself. You had to make a painting and the painting was the object that you sold. And the painting was also the object that you looked at. Right. And that's a limitation. That's a restriction. When you separate that, the thing that you sell as a token, your artwork can be anything. Right. So there you go. To me, that's that's the promise of NFTs is that I believe it, it can liberate artists to be more conceptual with their work. You don't have to make a painting that matches someone's couch. All right. You don't have to make a sculpture that can be like shipped and, and, and sold and, you know, fit on someone's end table. Right. Um, but I think that that separation between, you know, commodity form and expressive form could happen for existing works. So it's possible that if you have, you know, a, a piece on the wall behind you, there's no reason why you couldn't write a smart contract that says, okay, this piece belongs on the wall of MoMA, like it's contracted to be here for the next 199 years, but its ownership and therefore its financial value um, can be transacted even while the physical thing itself stays on our wall forever. 
I can definitely see that happening in the future, and we'll have to revisit this in 10 years and see if your prediction was right, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. Maybe we'll hit it before the 10 years is what I'm thinking. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mitchell, for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Before you go, just tell people where they can find you, and then also if you're working on any cool projects that you want to plug or you know let people know how they can check out uh, Digital Zones as well, because I, I know I think on OpenSea it's something else, and then is there like a website for it that people can go to? It's it's a little obscure and elusive to find. Yes, it's very elusive and mysterious. Um, but the best way to learn everything there is to know about Digital Zones and my other work uh, and, and my whole career is at the website chan.gallery. And chan.gallery has links to my Twitter, Instagram, uh, Discord, and it has links to the blue paper, which explained the digital zones back in 2017 um, and, and updates about um, where it's been since. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks again so much, Mitchell. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And we'll be back again soon with another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, and download our podcast and share this episode on social media with your network. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. You can continue this conversation with us on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. We look forward to chatting with you and thanks again for listening.